so as we're coming into chapter nine, I want to sort of make sure that we have got the argument clear in our minds. And if we were able to look at the Padlet, then um, I'd show you there um, that, yeah, and hopefully you can see that on the screen now. So we're sort of building up some bit of material here that we can refer to. Remember, if you want to go to this Padlet, it's just padlet.com forward slash John Owen forward slash Romans, but the John Owen is uh, J0HN0W3N. Um, uh, so padlet.com forward slash John Owen forward slash Romans. Um, and then when you're on there, these things are just easy to open up and you'll be able to just see some uh, things that other people have put on as well. I'm really, really grateful that others have. But uh, one of the things that we've just recently put up there is a, a recap of the chapters that we've done so far from Romans one to eight and uh, i'm not going to go through that in, in detail now but it's just good for you to know that that material is there if you went to the beginning of the padlet you'd see the link to the the spreadsheet i was asked to recap this uh, last week by somebody so that you that's where you can click to get onto the spreadsheet the spreadsheet will take you through to the the links that we're making to various points of scripture uh, where there's kind of clear clear links uh, around so that that's there as well so um, I'll come off sharing my screen for now, um, but you, you know that those things are there for you. Certainly, at the end of chapter eight, you've sort of got to this point of a grand conclusion, haven't you? You know, chapter one is, is showed to us that just shall live by faith. It's shown actually, uh, look, if you look at the world that we live in, it's, it's full of all unrighteousness. Uh, what's more, you're part of the problem, chapter two. Um, we need to acknowledge the problem of sin, chapter three, uh, chapter, uh, end of chapter three, look to God's provision in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, look to that in faith and realize, chapter four, that God has always wanted faith. Look back to the examples of Abraham, to examples of David. Yes, you, you might find it difficult to get your head around the fact that your faith in God's grace is actually sufficient for you to be saved. But but if you can get your head around the uh, enormity of the impact of Adam's sin, understand that God's grace is bigger than that, chapter five. So therefore make chapter six, your baptism, the reality of your life. Live it, you know, serve God, serve righteousness, you know, God's right ways. Don't serve sin in your life choose to go after God yes you'll find that a challenge chapter seven but keep that battle alive delight in God's ways and you'll realize chapter eight there is so much on your side you know God is, is put so much in place to help us to be more than conquerors in his son the Lord Jesus Christ nothing can separate us from the love of God in the Lord Jesus Christ but still there's a a burning question from from some all through, we've seen, haven't we, that there's a strong Judaistic element to this ecclesia in Rome. Uh, certainly there are those who would have been genuinely concerned about the Jewish community. They have had links to it. And a key question on their minds would be regarding their relationship or, or this kind of community's relationship with God and their salvation. And so chapters 9 to 11 are dealing with just that. Now, how is it that Israel, this community, that this people that God has had this relationship over all these years, you know, now not all of Israel are, are coming into the truth. What is God's um, plan with Israel? Uh, and so that's what chapters 9 to 11 are going to bring out. And there are two fundamental principles that we need to balance. 
one salvation is god's provision absolutely key salvation is god's provision god provided the covering in eden all through the old testament god fought the battles when they trusted him and those things pointed to the fact that god would provide his son the lord jesus christ for our redemption the second key principle is this man has free will god manifestation is ultimately about the fact god will choose people who choose his ways god could have made man and women uh, women sorry uh, who who automatically glorify him but by giving them free will it's clear that god is interested in people who choose to obey him they want to follow his ways and make them their delight so so let's look at the argument now in chapter nine a little bit more clearly but just remember those two key principles are just so important in understanding god's purpose with anybody that yes he provides salvation but also man has free will verse one of chapter nine i say the truth in christ i lie not my conscience also bearing me witness in the holy spirit that i have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart for I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenant and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, who is of the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all. God bless forever. Amen. So the apostle wishes Israel who have all these blessings and those blessings that he sort of just listed through there. And no doubt you can just sort of go through and, and number them if nothing else. He wishes that Israel would convert. Now, you remember from chapter three that some Jews had been suggesting that if the whole nation hadn't converted in faith, then this plan of salvation in Christ can't be right. You know, because actually they haven't all converted. Their reasoning was, how can a chosen people not all be included? And the apostle addresses it now by explaining God's word is still effective. Actually, it's always been the case that in a given group of people, not all will respond. Some are accepted and some are rejected. And there has always been a distinction. Verse six, not as though the word of God has taken on effect. No, don't think, don't think the word of God hasn't had effect. It has. For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. So to be a natural descendant of Abraham didn't mean you were saved. Abraham had two sons. Ishmael was through Abraham's own strength, but Isaac was the child of promise. Verse eight, that is, they which are the children of the flesh, in other words, the descendants of Ishmael, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. In Isaac, so shall thy seed be called. So it's just very clear, isn't it, that 
to simply say you're a descendant of Abraham in itself did not mean salvation. In a really simple way, it just when Abraham's own two sons were born, God chose one to whom the promises would come. And it was the one through which Abraham had to believe in faith he would come, not the one that Abraham through his own strength provided. The next example that's given is that of Esau and Jacob. Uh, and before those boys were even born, God says, we see this in verse uh, 11, the children not yet being born, neither having done anything good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of God that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. Now, your cross-reference in your margin will take you back to, to Genesis 25, when, of course, those boys, twins, were in the womb of their mother. And that was when God said, the elder shall serve the younger. Before they'd done anything, God was able to say that. You see, God's plan of salvation has always been on his terms. It's not to do with who your father is or if you're the firstborn. So you think who your father is, you know, in Ishmael's case, no, that wasn't what mattered. Or are you the firstborn in Esau's case? No, that's not what mattered. God saves on the basis of faith. And in this case, Esau despised God's promises to him. And so God rejected him. Verse 13, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And of course, that's citing. And again, you might be able to just see it in your margin from Malachi chapter one, verses two and three. Verse 12 was before Jacob and Esau were born to cement the principle that salvation would be nothing to do with birthright. Verse 13 was years after they were dead. It's from Malachi, the final prophet of the Old Testament. And in one sense, it's the same point, namely that Esau was the seed of Abraham and Isaac, yet God didn't choose him. But more than that now, Esau's way of life precluded him from the promises. You see, God's purpose with people depends on how they, how we will respond. Esau despised God's promises, so God rejected him. God hates any who behave like Esau. That's the key message in Malachi, because the Jews were behaving more like the Edomites, the, the descendants of Esau. He becomes symbolic almost of the way of the flesh, which God hates. But God alone chooses. And we certainly have no right to question God's justice. We're weak, mortal creatures. It's ridiculous for us to question an all-powerful immortal God. God is like the potter molding the clay. When the clay is hard and unyielding, God will reject it. But of course, he always gets it right. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is there unfairness with God? By no means. Of course not. You remember Abraham once said, it's in uh, Genesis chapter 18, I think, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? It's a, it's a great quote, isn't it? It shows Abraham's faith. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? 
God chooses who he will extend his promises to. Salvation is not based on man's strength. Now, let's just make sure that we're thinking clearly here. Do not allow ourselves to go down a line of thinking. Is this fair? Verse 14, that's that point, isn't it? Is God unfair? Of course not. Everything we know about God is that his mercy and compassion are integral to him. If it was anyone else doing the choosing, well, then we might be concerned. But we should read verse 15 with relief. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Read it with relief. God is in control. And God chooses people who through his foreknowledge he knows are responding to his word so verse 15 we see is also a citation isn't it from exodus chapter 33 and certainly uh, if you couldn't see these in cross references in your margin uh, open up that spreadsheet at some point through this week and go through and just circle these cross references coming through here you know they're abounding uh, through this chapter and in chapter 10 and in chapter 11 to see these cross references constantly coming up to help us to see that this has always been the purpose of God but here then we see I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy is coming back to Exodus chapter 33 and verse 19. And the context of that passage is that the children of Israel had turned to the golden calf. Remember that in Exodus chapter 32, they'd set up the gods of Egypt, essentially, hadn't they? And Moses at that time desperately pleads for the people. He's asking God to have mercy on the people. Moses says in Exodus 33 and verse 16, wherein shall it be known that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not in that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. And he's saying, look, Lord God, you know, you want us, don't you? And God, of course, is listening to Moses. But at the same time, he is clear. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. There's no doubt that God is fair, but his character is uncompromising. Thankfully, his mercy and his grace will only be extended to those who worship no other God. Uh, that comes in Exodus 34 and verse 14. Moses, yeah, he wanted God to go with them no matter what. However, the Lord God would not compromise his righteousness. He is merciful and gracious and he won't clear the guilty. Behold, the goodness and severity of God, as Romans 11 will put it. If people continue in their ways, God won't be merciful to them. In contrast, if in response to his word, they faithfully abide in his goodness, he will be good to them by showing them grace and mercy. But God's character is uncompromised. So he will show mercy 
to whom he will show mercy and he will be gracious to whom he will be gracious. So having then scanned history, in a sense, uh, the Apostle Paul here, by looking back to Israel's roots in Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the Apostle Paul has now shown, hasn't he, that having left Egypt under Moses and uh, that golden calf incident was proof that God was still consistent. He would not simply bring Israel into the promised land on the base of them being Israelites. He would be gracious to whom he would be gracious. And we know those who lacked faith fell in the wilderness. And so the principle goes back to Isaac. Yes, he was chosen because he was the child of promise. And he was somebody who responded to God in faith. Jacob was chosen. Yes, he was the child of promise. And, but true, he responded to God in faith. Ishmael and Esau, they rejected God's ways. They didn't want them. And so too, for the nation as a whole, when they left Egypt, God was still consistent. He wouldn't simply save because Abraham was their father. He would be gracious to whom he would be gracious and show mercy to whom he would be show mercy. And those who lacked faith, they died in the wilderness. What God has always wanted is faith. And faith, Romans 10, comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. It's a response to the word. God won't compromise based on human evaluations of effort. Verse 16. So then it's not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. What a blessing that is. God is the one in control. Now, of course, for the Jews, the law was all about what you did. But as a far wider principle, salvation is not based on our works. Don't think that because someone has a desire they, they've got a will that God is therefore bound to save them. God, who is fair, knows how that person will react to his word. So to someone running for it, again, we might think, surely someone who's making every effort to get to things, they're searching for God, surely they'll be saved. Once again, we remind ourselves, God is fair. Is there unrighteousness with God? By no means. Someone may well have a desire, make the effort to listen to God, but then they won't make the changes in their lives. And ironically, there are folk out there who say they have a desire and say they'll make the effort for God. But almost in the same breath, insist that it's only fair that, that God receives them for the good person they are or, or tries to justify other people for the good people they are, for the fact that they will or the fact that they run. Never have the audacity to attempt to justify ourselves before God. Well, of course, it's because of God's foreknowledge that God can use those who he knows won't respond to his word for his purpose. And so we see now in verse 17 how he says the scripture. And again, we've got another citation saith unto Pharaoh. Even for this very purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. 
So the inspired apostle turns the spotlight here on Pharaoh. And we see the citation, hopefully we've got it in our margin, from verse 17 back to Exodus 9 and verse 16. Well, I think it's worth us turning here. So let's stick a marker in Romans chapter 9 and let's go back together to this particular citation in Exodus chapter 9 and just spend a few moments here seeing if we can understand what's going on with Pharaoh. So God is teaching Israel that he alone is God. And Pharaoh has every chance to acknowledge that. But he keeps hardening his heart. And in the end, God gives him what he wants. And I'm going to share my screen here and see if I can get you to see the, the timing of this event. So let's attempt to share screen and hopefully you'll be able to see this. So what you can see is the plagues as they were uh, put upon Egypt, sent upon Egypt. So the water to blood, the frogs, the lice, the flies, the cattle. And what you can also see is how that at the beginning for those first five plagues, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then God said, OK, enough is enough. And God hardens his heart. But then in his long suffering, in his mercy, God gives Pharaoh another chance. But again, Pharaoh hardens his heart. And so God, in the end, absolutely confirms him in what he wants. So we've got the timing of the point, and you can see that it's pretty crucial that this passage in Romans 9 is quoting that point in Exodus 9 verse 16, which is right there. It's where God first hardens his heart, but gives him another opportunity. We're going to make a point about that now. So let's just make sure we've got it. Exodus 9 verse 12. Yahweh hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Okay, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh there in verse 12. But if we go to the end of the plague here, verse 35, the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. He hardens his own heart. So God has hardened his heart for the first time. But even then, God gives him another chance. He allows him to stand. And this is the point I want you to get now. I think this is really exciting. He says, for this cause have I raised thee up, or the Hebrew there is have I allowed, made thee to stand. And if you just look back to verse 11, you see it's a contrast to the magicians who after that plague could not stand. Can you see that in Exodus 9 in verse 11? The magicians after that plague of Boaz could not stand. But God gives Pharaoh another opportunity okay, and says, for this cause, for this very reason, I've allowed you to stand. Your magicians, everyone else is sat, but I'm allowing you to stand. For what reason? OK, let's keep reading verse 16. Why has God allowed Pharaoh to stand? To show in thee my power and that my name 
might be declared throughout all the earth. So very clearly, God's power is linked there with his name. So he says that I might show my power in me. And I think, and certainly I before, I immediately thought that the power is the fact that God ends up hardening his heart. And I'm not completely saying that that isn't the case, but it's surely also the power of God's mercy. So in other words, God keeps Pharaoh standing to demonstrate his mercy. Now, let me try to back that up for you. Would you mind just holding that and having a quick look at Numbers chapter 14? And Numbers 14, as you're turning there, you might be thinking to yourself, yeah, famous chapter, all about the, the character of God. I shall fill the earth uh, with the glory of the Lord. So Exodus 14 and verse 21. But just come back a couple of verses to verse 17. Moses says, I beseech thee, let the power of my Lord be great, according as thou hast spoken, saying, Yahweh is long suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and will by no means clear the guilty. Now, isn't that interesting? That is absolutely Exodus 33 again, that passage that we were at earlier. But can you see that the power of God is shown in the fact that Yahweh is long-suffering and of great mercy? So God's power is shown in his character, which is one, you know, which we might bind up with his name. So hence, back in Exodus 9 and verse uh, 16, uh, I'll show thee my power that my name might be declared, you know, because God's name being declared is his character being declared. So God's power is shown in his mercy, that his character of mercy, as well as judgment. God's power will triumph regardless in the end, either through his mercy or through his judgment. And in the case of Pharaoh, although God allowed him to stand one more time when everyone else was sat down so that God could show his power through. Him, God could show that he's a long suffering God and would be merciful to me and give Pharaoh another opportunity. Actually, Pharaoh chose to reject the word of God. And so God gives him his heart's desire and God's power is shown through hardening his heart and judgment coming upon Pharaoh. But it's surely important too, back in Exodus 9 again, that we understand here that actually this is about a response to the word of God. Look at this, Exodus 9 and verse 20. He that feared the word of Yahweh among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his cattle flee into the houses. He that regarded not the word of Yahweh left his servants and his cattle in the fields. It's absolutely clear it's crystal, isn't it? It's about a response to the word of God. And, you know, at first in Pharaoh's case, you think, oh, great, he's got it. Verse 27, Pharaoh sent uh, and called for Moses and Aaron and said unto them, I have sinned this time. Yahweh is righteous and I and my people are wicked. 
And you think to yourself, wow, he's read Romans. This is the reaction that God wants. You acknowledge sin in your life. But verse 34, when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder were ceased, he sinned yet more and harmed his heart. He and his servants and the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. Neither would he let the children of Israel go as the Lord had spoken by Moses. And so the lesson is so clear. The goodness of God is for those who will continue in his goodness. As it was true for Pharaoh, so is true for the world. Opportunities been given. But if people choose to ignore God, then God won't continue to be merciful. Well, the next question, let's go back to Romans again. Romans chapter nine. And now we're coming to verse 19. This next question, some may feel justified asking to say, well, look, if God is in control, we saw that in the case of Pharaoh. If God is in control, is it fair? And again, you're coming back to this question, aren't we? You know, remember the answer there in verse 14. Is there unrighteous with God? No, by no means. But still, we get people will start thinking, well, you know, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So, so God's got this element of control. Is, is it fair in this situation? And, and we saw that, yes, God is fair, as with the example of Pharaoh. And certainly as mortal man, what we've got to think to ourselves is we've got no right to be calling God out. Remember, we're mortal. Verse 19, why doth, then wilt thou say unto me, why doth God still find fault? Why, why, is he, um, why would he still find fault in it, someone like Pharaoh? Because who can withstand God's will? Verse 20, no, but O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Shall the thing formed as in us say to God, that formed us why have you made me thus and so you realize there's a real warning there isn't there be careful don't question the creator and you'll see that the phrase shall the thing formed say to him that formed it why hast thou made me thus is another citation you see that in your margin my margin takes me to isaiah chapter 45 it could take me to Isaiah 29 as well and we could make another point there but I'm going to make a point here about Isaiah 45 and verse 9 which is clearly a direct citation from now that passage Isaiah 45 again let's just hold this for a moment and make sure I can completely prove this to you come to Isaiah 45 we won't be there for too long but just come there with me now and Again, as you're turning there, think, who is Isaiah 45 about? You might remember before you get there. It's a very famous passage, and it's about Cyrus, Cyrus, the king of Persia. And there in verse 1, or you can see it actually at the end of chapter 44, verse 27 and 28, talking about Cyrus there and the fact that he would be the one who God would cause to rebuild uh, the city of Jerusalem to get the foundation of the temple laid. And if you go to Ezra, we see that happens. So this is an amazing prophecy about Cyrus, chapter 45, thus saith the to his anointed to Cyrus. So Cyrus is like a type of Christ in that sense. He's a, the anointed. And then we come to verse 13 and God says, I have raised him up, Cyrus up in righteousness 
and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and he shall let go my captives, not for price nor reward, saith the Lord of hosts. Isn't that wonderful? There's a prophecy about Cyrus. And that is what's being quoted very, very clearly in Romans 9 and verse 20. So isn't that interesting? We've just seen Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt. And Pharaoh was taught the word of God from Moses, but he chose to ignore the word of God. And as a result, he was, uh, you know, God hardened his heart and God still used him for his purpose. That's for sure. But actually, Pharaoh, you know, is dead and in the grave without hope. But Cyrus is different, isn't he? It's abundantly clear if you read the beginning of Ezra that Cyrus heard the word of God, probably from Daniel, and responded appropriately. And so God says of him, I have raised him up in righteousness. Uh, so perhaps he's an example of Romans 9 and verse 13, the, the, verse 30, sorry, the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. So Pharaoh heard the word of God through Moses and responded inappropriately. And so the apostle writes in verse 21, hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honour, possibly Cyrus, and another unto dishonour, Pharaoh? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath, fitted to destruction. Well, we saw so clearly that God allowed Pharaoh to stand, to show his power in him, to show his long-suffering nature. He allowed him to stand one more time. After five plagues, Pharaoh's hardened his heart, hardened his heart, hardened his heart. Hardened. So God says, okay, you, you have what you want and hardens his heart. But God says, no, I will give you another opportunity. I will let you stand so that I can show my long-suffering. But Pharaoh, hardens his heart again and so yes he was a vessel fitted to destruction god would use him for that purpose god was completing the job as the potter he uses pharaoh for his purpose then and so perhaps a, a helpful cross-reference to just put in your, your margin there in terms of uh, thinking about that in verse uh, 23 how God will even use those characters then to for his purpose, even if they've rejected him. To just have a quick look at Isaiah chapter 43. Uh, for me, this is a helpful cross-reference to just put into my margin. Isaiah 43 and verse 3 says, I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Saviour, I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee, since thou was precious in my sight and has been honourable. Remember, vessels for honour, vessels for dishonour. I have loved thee, therefore will I give men for thee and people for thy life. And certainly we saw in the case of, of Pharaoh that, um, yeah, God would work and he would willingly give Pharaoh to make sure that Israel could get to the promised land. So then back in Romans chapter nine, we, we've seen now, haven't we, examples from history, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau. Or perhaps you might think in terms of, OK, we, we get those in Jewish examples of those faithful who responded. 
And we might say some were for honour and some were for dishonour. We see, don't we, clearly Isaac honour, Ishmael dishonour, Jacob honour, Esau dishonour. And then we've looked at Gentile examples, Pharaoh and Cyrus. And again, we've been shown these examples because in the end, it's this same principle of how do you respond to the word of God that comes to us? Verse 24, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So, so too, these same principles are going to occur all the way through God's purpose. Now, even us, God will choose us on the basis of our response to his word. We'll, we'll see that coming through more and more clearly. And so the argument in Romans now continues with quotes again from Hosea and from Isaiah. So let's um, read through these passages and just make sure that we've got them circled and we know where these quotes are coming from. So verse 25, as he saith also in Hosea, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, you are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel, though the number of the children be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we had been a Sodom and been made like unto Gomorrah. Well, bearing in mind this section of Romans is, you know, chapters 9 to 11 is focusing on Israel. We're not surprised, are we, to see the uh, amount of citations that there are to Israel. And I'm going to, um, to, I say to Israel, to the Old Testament. And there on the screen, you can just see, can't you, that the peak if you're running through the, the bottom line on the graph, you see the chapters in Romans. Um, and quite honestly, you know, I, I'm this is sort of um, an attempt at just pulling out, you know, not illusions at all, uh, just absolute crystal clear. This is a citation. And I, I'm, even then, I'm not convinced by it. But it's something I pulled off the Internet just in terms of saying, is any, can I find anywhere that's just got numbers of citations? Um, and it just struck me as it's. It, even if you're looking at the most basic things, it's really clear that chapters 9, 10, 11 have got an abundance of citations coming through them. But here we have got two citations. And the first one we're going to have a look at is from Hosea. But even looking at Hosea, um, hopefully you can uh, see the screen there. Even looking at Hosea, we can see that there are a couple of citations coming here. The first one, the first one is from chapter two and verse 23. And that's what verse 25 is quoting. I will call them my people, which were not my people and her beloved, which was not beloved. Now, the second part and her beloved, which was not beloved, it seems to be that that's coming from chapter three of Hosea and verse one. So verse 23 of Hosea is the last verse of Hosea two. So we see that, but actually when it says, then said the Lord unto me, go yet love a woman beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress. I'm sure that that is what Romans nine and verse 25 is picking up next. And her beloved, 
which was not beloved. Well, you can see why she's not beloved, because she had become an adulteress. So those verses are talking about Israel, and actually I believe they're looking at Israel in the future, that despite their waywardness, God would once again reach out to them in his love. And so Hosea had to go and find his wife, Goma, who had gone off with another man, she'd become an adulteress, and he had to redeem her and take her to him again and love her again. And that was to teach Israel that God would once again bring Israel back into a relationship with him. In verse 26, Paul then cites from Hosea again, but this time from Hosea chapter 1 and verse 10, where he says, It shall come to pass in the place where it was said unto them, You are not my people. There shall they be called the children of the living God. And you can see that from the screen, a very clear citation from Hosea chapter one and verse 10. But these words are also from Isaiah chapter 10. So the, the so apologies, the Apostle Paul in verse 27 says, Isaiah also cries concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. So can you see that I'm showing you so far on the screen, Hosea 1 verse 10, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea. Hosea says that, yes, that's true, but verse 27, Isaiah also cries concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. Uh, and now if I flick the slide, we'll go to Isaiah, and you see that's true, that Isaiah did also say that, as Hosea did. For thy people Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return. And so we see that, yes, uh, Romans, the Apostle Paul is saying, yeah, Isaiah also said, made this same point. And then the Apostle cites again from Isaiah 10, a bit further on, when in Isaiah 10, it says the consumption decreed shall overflow with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts shall make a consumption, make an end, even determined in the midst of all the land. Uh, and that is clearly what the Apostle Paul is alluding to in verse 28. God will finish the work, and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And I'll come back and comment about that in a moment. But then you'll see there's another cross-reference from Isaiah 1 and verse 9. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom and we should have been made like unto Gomorrah. And the point of that is that even when Israel was a vast nation, okay, they were like the sand of the sea. Still then, even when they were that vast nation, God would have utterly destroyed it, but for a remnant of faithful believers. And, and in that case, in the time of Isaiah and Hosea, Hezekiah, and a handful of others who listened to the words of the prophets, they were the remnant who would return. And remember how the Assyrian came down and they did almost destroy Israel, but they didn't take Jerusalem. And you know, 
a crucial point that comes through on all these passages is, yes, they're about Israel. But actually, when we look at their historical context in the days of Hezekiah, we're not at all surprised to see that the Gentiles were involved, too. So, so get this as a cross reference. 2 Chronicles 13 verse 25 talks about the strangers coming in the time of Hezekiah. The Gentiles, too, were involved. And for any who knew their scriptures, they would see whilst the apostle has, has got these Judaizers clearly seeing that God doesn't simply save Jews because they are Jews. He never has. Even when there was thousands of them, like the sand of the seashore, he was still saying only a remnant could be saved. Actually, he would have utterly destroyed them and make them like Sodom and Gomorrah, except there was a very small remnant. You see, all the time, God is, is working with a remnant. And these Judaizers needed to understand that. But actually, when they looked a bit deeper, they would understand that that remnant was made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And those passages that are quoted, the context of them is about the fact that the Gentiles, too, were called by God to uh, the to Jerusalem to, to take part in the the, uh, the the Passover feast at the time of Hezekiah. So in the place where they weren't called my people there in Jerusalem, they were called God's people. And you see what the point is for these Jews who are reading Romans and struggling with what, what happens to the nation of Israel. God will not change. He's always been consistent in electing people who respond to his word, either Jews or Gentiles. And verse 28, that verse I said I'll come back to, I believe is, is God reassuring us he will finish his work. In fact, the word work is not overly helpful. It's the word logos. In other words, God's word, you know, that's the word logos, isn't it? God's word will be completed. The prophecies will come true. Do not doubt the potter. Uh, I love Philippians 1 and verse 6. You know, it's that amazing verse that says, what God has started in you, he will complete. He will finish. He will bring a just, righteous judgment onto this earth. Uh, and the fact that he'll cut it short means that it will happen quickly and with finality. It will happen. And so then, having made the point now so clearly that God's purpose always has been and always will be to choose out individuals from any group of people. The basis of God's choosing is now going to be made crystal clear. Verse 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after uh, the law of righteousness, have not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Why? Because they sought it not by faith. They sought it not by faith. The only way we'll be saved is if we'll have faith. Romans 1 verse 17. The just shall live by faith. Anyone, even Gentiles who come to God in faith, 
can be imputed righteous, counted righteous. The Jews at that time, they sought for a law that had righteousness for its end. They tried to make God's law a means of attaining a legal righteousness. What a mistake. We cannot justify ourselves before God. We need to recognize our imperfection, confess our sin and look to God in faith, to his grace, if we're to be counted righteous. And the focal point of our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 33. They stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written. Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offence, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. And we see here that under inspiration, the apostle is merging citations from Isaiah. So can you see this now? Again, hopefully you're able to see this on the screen. So let's just make sure we've got this. Behold, I lay in Zion. That's very clearly Isaiah 28, verse 16. Therefore, thus saith the Lord Yahweh, behold, I lay in Zion. Oh, hold on. For a foundation stone. But, but that's not what it says. Behold, I lay in Zion, Romans 9, verse 33, a stumbling stone and rock of offence. Well, that's come from Isaiah 8 and verse 14. It shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence for both the houses of Israel, a gin, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. But then, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. OK, well, now I can pick up that at the end of Romans uh, of Isaiah 28 and verse 16, he does say he that believeth shall not make haste. And the idea of not making haste is the idea of not being ashamed in the sense that you won't run away. You won't run from it. You're not ashamed of it. But it is worth pointing out that the idea of whosoever is changed from Isaiah 28. There, so it just says he that believeth. And I'm not saying it doesn't mean whosoever, but we do get the idea of whosoever in Joel 2 and verse 32. And that comes up in, in Romans 10. So it could well be that whosoever is drawing from Joel 2 there. So in other words, Jew or Gentile, whoever believes on him should not uh, be ashamed. Well, of course, the Jewish readers would know these scriptures for sure. So they would sit up and think when this quote was different from the Hebrew text in Isaiah 28. And that's the point, isn't it? To make them think God's plan was to start a new order. They knew that, that actually God would lay in Zion a foundation stone, a tried stone. It'd be this new building. They knew that the, the, the uh, prophets were speaking about at that time. A sure foundation would be laid. But that very stone, Christ, was the stone which the builders rejected. And it became the stumbling stone, the stumbling block, the rock of offence to the Jews. Uh, and, and ironically, the Apostle Paul is quoting that to show them, look, the scriptures predicted that too. Now, we're confident that this is the point being made here in terms of that, that uh, the change in the citation. I'll tell you why. Come with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. It will come back shortly to conclude in Romans, but come with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 
and just see how essentially the same point is being made. So 1 Peter chapter 2, and um, say good time, we'll, we'll go in at verse 6. So having spoken about the fact that, uh, yeah, the Lord Jesus Christ is the, the, the living stone, it says in verse 6, Wherefore it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be ashamed. And we see there very clearly, don't we? Isaiah 28 and verse 16. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. If you've got faith, he's precious. That believe, that's what it means, isn't it? To have faith. But unto them which be disobedient, in the revised version says, for such as disbelieve, that stone is the stone which the builders rejected. The same is become the head of the corner. Yes, they rejected it, those who disbelieved, but he's become the head of the corner. He's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient. They disbelieve. Run to also they're appointed. But look at this, it's interesting. Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praise of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvellous light, which in time past, Hosea here again, were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So it too brings together Isaiah and Hosea, showing that where faith was lacking, the focal point of faith has got to be in that stone, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he can be a, a, um, a, a sure foundation, a tritone, a precious stone, a cornerstone. He, he can be the, 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 uh, the building block of our lives. Or if we will not put our faith in that provision which God has given, there is the stumbling stone, the one, the rock of offence. Now, if you're just on our way back to Romans 9, just get you to stop off at one other place very quickly. And it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The reason I want to just stop here very briefly is because of one sentence, which tells us specifically that it was Christ crucified that was the stumbling block to the Jews. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23. We preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block. So coming back to Romans 9, we realize that what they couldn't deal with was a suffering savior. And it struck me as so obvious why. If you think salvation is all about the strength of human flesh no wonder a suffering savior makes no sense once you recognize the flesh needs to die the lord jesus christ then can become the foundation stone of our lives what a key lesson for us we can be counted righteous if we'll put our faith in god never try to justify ourselves constantly look to the word of God and be willing to be molded 
respond to the word of God and you'll have a rock on which to build your life.